This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moe, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Samuel D. Brownback is the United States Ambassador at Large for International Religious Freedom. He has served in that role since February the 1st of 2018. Previously, he served as Governor of Kansas from 2011 to 2018. Before that, he served in the United States Senate and as a member of the House of Representatives. While a member of the Senate, he worked actively on the issue of religious freedom in multiple contexts and was a key sponsor of the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. He also served as Kansas Secretary of Agriculture and was a White House Fellow in the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. Prior to public service, he was a private attorney in Kansas and taught agricultural law at Kansas State University. He earned his undergraduate degree from that institution, his law degree from the University of Kansas. Ambassador Brownback, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks, Al. It's a pleasure to join you. It's been a delight to be here with you on the campus. Beautiful place, and uh, what a global mission uh, that you guys are involved in. It's really been impressive uh, impressive to see, and the, the lecture I gave I, it looked like to me about a third of the audience was from uh, overseas, some uh, some country uh, overseas, and and that's the sort of thing that's happening so much around the world now. Is that the Christian word, the message, is going to so many different places, and and uh, and often persecuted when it gets there. One of the most encouraging aspects, Ambassador, of being president of an institution like this is seeing the world come here. And what a stewardship that is, and especially students from about 70-plus countries uh, who are here. And uh, you're right. Many of them are preparing to go into places where they're going to face a great deal of opposition, and in some cases minister to a church suffering persecution. Heavy persecution. Uh, and often you go into these places, you'll see the pastor is the one that's um, singled out first. He, or in some cases she, but most of the times he— uh, is the person that when the, the terrorist or the communal violence starts, they go after the pastor. He's the leader. He's the guy that, that put the church here. He's the guy that organized the cell. And so you're, you're not only training them theologically, uh, they have to be prepared mentally for the, the price they have to pay and that they're willing to pay. And it, yes. it, to me, it's an incredible beauty to, to witness and to see people like that willing to go into that type of situation where we in the West would go— well, why would you go do that? You're right. just, you're, but but the, the fire in the belly that they have is so impressive to see. You know, I have been humbled by the faith and uh, faithfulness of uh, so many Christians around the world. And a few years ago, I had the opportunity to fly to a, a country I won't mention in order actually to teach pastors from another country, a Muslim-dominated country, that we could meet in a third country. And what was so humbling to me was that uh, there was a young man, he was 18, and he was one of the pastors. And so I said to one of the older men in the room, I said, well, he must be a remarkable young man. They said, well, actually, he's the last young man. Uh, he's the last living Christian man in that village. Oh, so wow. he is the pastor. And that was very humbling. And I taught for hours. And, you know, a translation, it, it takes hours to, 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 to teach at least twice as long. And so several hours later, I was walking out with the, with the older man and the younger man. And I said something about uh, how moved I was that he was here and so I asked the 18-year-old, I said, how can I pray for you? And I was astounded at his answer. I, I was completely unprepared for this. And he said, I wish you would pray that I would have a wife. And I thought, well, that's a prayer an 18-year-old young man might very well ask. And yeah. yet the older man looked at me and said, any woman who marries him is at best going to become a widow. And at worst, will die with him. And I just walked out of that room, and we were headed for dinner, and I thought, how do I eat dinner? What kind of courage has ever been required of me? Relative to that. Relative I, to and, that. And that's the way I am. When, in, in this work that I'm in, you know, you're traveling all over the world. You're seeing these people that, that are persecuted for their faith. And the things that so trouble me and that make my blood boil about it 
is these are people, they're not trying to overthrow a government. They're not trying to cause trouble. All they're trying to do is simply practice their faith uh, in, a, in a quiet, peaceful way. Now, they're often a minority faith uh, in this area, and so they're different than the majority community, but all they're trying to do is just practice in peace— uh, and yet they get they get persecuted, they get pursued, they get killed, they get jailed. They, they, I mean, all these things happen to them. And you, yes. you're looking at it and you're just going, that just shouldn't happen in the world today. We're in 2019. This should be a basic human right that people should be able to experience all over the world to be able to practice their faith or not have a faith or convert their faith if they decide to do that. And, and that's really one of the powering things uh, by this administration. Uh, is that they're willing to fight for this faith in other countries. And we see it as a key human right, uh, a key right that builds, that you can build on, and, um, and one that's been um, sadly neglected uh, around many places around the world. When you think about religious persecution and uh, the, the challenges of today, I can't help but rewind history. And, mm. uh, for instance— uh, <laughs> For a completely different purpose, last night I was reading about the Roman Emperor Trajan and was reminded of the uh, the ancient governor, uh, Pliny the Younger, writing to Trajan about how to handle the Christians. And uh, they were he was asking, as this provincial governor, he, he was asking the question, are they subversive or not? Really? And yes, it's a fascinating correspondence and, and quite modern when you think about it. He's yes. asking, is, are, are they subversive or not? And he said, I decided that they are not subversive if they merely pray and sing, but they are subversive in the sense they will not worship the emperor. They will not bend the knee to the emperor. And I thought that's exactly where, where we are today. Uh, is Christianity subversive? Well, only in the sense that we cannot worship a regime. Yeah. You know? and, and so— uh, as religious liberties threatened around the world, uh, you're right. What most believers want to do is just live peaceably. They do, and they want to pray for their leaders. By and large, they do. But but yet, you just get to—you're around leaders around the world that they just don't trust this because they won't bend the knee to the emperor. Right. And a lot of times, too, Christians, when you, you get a hold of this concept of the inherent dignity of the human person— every person, created in the image of God, then that person has these incredible rights, and if the, if the state comes down on those rights, it's like, no, that's the, you, you can't do that. The state can't yes. do this because you're a dignified human individual. Your soul lasts forever. And so that that then becomes subversive to governments or that they Absolutely. see that as a subversive issue. And, and that's one where we, we run into it as much as anywhere, is it's that the, the government's not necessarily directly opposed to Christianity, but they're opposed to the product, the fruit yes. of it, which is this human dignity that often spills out of it, that spills out of it. Well, that leads to a very important question I want to ask you, because one of my main projects is trying to, uh, to analyze what, people are talking about when they talk about human rights and human dignity. And I think that's one of the major problems right now in the secular West, or increasingly secular West, especially in, amongst the elites. So let me just ask you, you, you said that, uh, that human dignity is grounded in the fact that our soul's going to live forever. Well, that's a pretty theological definition of human dignity. I guess, I guess the big question we're having to ask is whether or not human dignity can be defined and defended in the terms of the Western secular elites, merely in secular terms. I'm, I'm finding that very difficult to conceive. It's, um, it's, it's a debate probably above my head uh, to be able to do. I, I, I know for myself it becomes— pretty simple to do in that when you, you consider that individual created in the image of God, well, then it's not hard for me to say, well, of course you're dignified. Right. And even if you've created, if, even if you've committed heinous crimes right. and done horrible things, you remain a dignified human individual that remains and retains that dignity uh, as a human individual. And so then that informs as a policymaker, which I was, it informs what you're willing to do and to not. Do. If you don't have that theological basis to it, then I, I guess really you have to look at it from a standpoint of well, I still believe that that 
we, as we have evolved to this state, are an incredible thing, and we have individual rights. Now, I may, I guess, define those rights more broadly or more or differently, but um, I don't know. You, you, ours, though, comes just—I mean, it comes from the Declaration of Independence. It comes from the very founding documents, you know, where you said mm-hmm. we, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their government. No, no, wait a minute. Wait, it doesn't. It's not endowed by their government. It's endowed by their creator, with certain inalienable rights, so yes. it's it's like when you break that away from it, um, it's that it becomes then really a, a a different terrain. It would seem to me. Well, I'm writing an article right now on the distinction between the secular European conception of human rights and the Chinese Communist Party's conception of human rights, because even though this would offend Western secularists, they don't have a very different argument. They just come out in a different place. Uh, because uh, if you take many of the European theorists or even take the debates in the European Union, they are denying any ontological basis for human rights and human dignity. They're simply asserting them because that's what it means to be human. But I'm going to argue they can only do that because they've inherited a Christian understanding <laughs> of the person, and they're they're just trying to graft on a, a secular viewpoint. But the, the, the Chinese Communist Party's conception of human rights is that they are the creation of the state, uh, that the party has the ability. And, of course, this was this was classical Marxist theory that the, the party basically invents these rights and then disposes of them as it sees fit in the name of the people. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, the secular West is going to find itself having an extremely weak argument against that. And, um, well, time will tell, but uh, the way you expressed and grounded human rights and human dignity is, I think, exactly right. And and as you say, in the nation's founding documents, is endowed by their creator. And uh, that's an astoundingly uh, important claim. It it is, and I think we walk away from it uh, at our great peril. Uh, because so much of it is attached to that human dignity, and where does that human dignity arrive from? I, I, and, I and I don't think people think often enough about the, the the very feature and the very thing that you're talking about. Well, then what do, what does ground those things? That was one of the things I loved about Justice Scalia uh, was that that he would ground things in basic truths and then you could then you had a basis to go from but he would also note if you don't ground them in these basic truths then you're kind of adrift of right. what 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 is the basis and why doesn't that basis change uh, if it's not defined in something that's an eternal truth and of course justice scalia who was famously the uh, the most influential textualist in, in the history of the Supreme Court, that was his preferred term. He was also grounded in natural law theory and classical Christian constructions of thought uh, that have been developed over hundreds of years, indeed well over a, a millennium. And, uh, and and one of the things he mentions, even in his latest book published posthumously just this week, he, he mentions that it's very difficult to have a debate with a secularist on these issues because you're starting with a different definition of person. You are. You are. And plus, I just thought you used the term natural law. Well, where does natural law come from? You know, so can you, if you're in the, the a mindset that God doesn't exist, didn't create these, well, then where, how do you ground that? How did that, how Absolutely. did that stuff come from, uh, come forward? And, and yet, you know, the basis when you're a person of faith and you believe in those things, then you can see how other faiths and other places can find um, truth because they, you, anybody can find truth in the natural law. Uh, and it's just a, it's a very basic piece of it. You know, when you are looking at uh, human rights and you're using that language in an international f- uh, sphere— how much common understanding do you really count upon as a United States ambassador? When you say human rights, human dignity, uh, how much shared vocabulary do you think you have? Yeah, you'd be amazed. It, I, it, it like resonates immediately as true. I don't think people uh, often will get into the, the theological debate of this. But when you say that 
everybody is a, in, has inherent rights as a dignified human being created in the image of God. I, I've done this to – there was – we were to Vietnamese bilateral negotiations. Vietnam's got a, a communist government, and I pointed out that religious freedom is something that comes from God, uh, and no government has the right to interfere with it. There, you know, you would kind of think, okay, Vietnam, communist government, uh, atheist government, they're going to push back on that. And yet it was just kind of the silence in the room about – I just heard truth. I, there was no argument back that we don't agree with this or how can you found this. It was more of a uh, truth when presented. Most people, it resonates in their heart with them immediately. They recognize it even if they mentally want to argue back. But most of the time, the initial reaction was, of of course. Or even there's this sort of discovery moment where people think, wow, that really is what people are like, isn't it? They really are amazingly beautiful and dignified uh, and that must come from somewhere. Absolutely. And they, but they recognize the truth of the word, even if they, if it catches them off guard for a minute, and then they got to go back to thinking, well, wait a minute, wait, I can't agree with that because that leads down this trail, and mm-hmm. I can't go down that trail. I think that's exactly right. Uh, I want to think about world history for just a moment because an interesting question is when did something become possible uh, when it was unimaginable before? And so when you think about religious liberty. And uh, even the the absence of an established religion, as is the American experiment, uh, it's an interesting question. When did that emerge? One historian has recently argued that religious toleration was first exercised by the least likely person you'd imagine, and that was Genghis Khan. I I thought you might be going there, and I've been reading. I've started a book on that topic. That's what I'm talking about, the same book. Okay, well, the Mongolian foreign minister gave me this book, and he was saying, well, this comes from Genghis Khan. And I'm kind of going, all right, you're going to have to develop that one for me because I'm not— It's interesting. Yeah, and he was saying that Thomas Jefferson was reading a French author who was doing history on the Khan uh, and that he was putting this forward. And Genghis Khan did this because he conquered all these various lands, and he didn't want to have to go back in and reconquer them. He really just wanted the tribute— uh, in them, but you can go ahead and practice whatever faith you want to. But you just got to pay me the money every year. And so I was going, okay, I, I want to research that some more. But all right, I I hear you, and I'll I'll look at it. <laughs> it isn't a situation I imagine in diplomacy where you're sometimes glad to have agreement, even if you don't know the reason why. <laughs> uh, I've been in denominational meetings. Sometimes it works the same way. But when you think about Genghis Khan. Uh, the interesting thing is, is that when you read the book and you look at the theory, it basically comes down not to religious liberty, but mere toleration. And it was in the interest of the Khan that he not have unnecessary energies expended into trying to force everyone into the same worldview. And I just want to say that's not what the founding fathers of the United States were honoring. It's not mere religious toleration. No, it wasn't. But I, I saw it as a almost a real politic that he was Absolutely. dealing with. I mean, this is, look, I don't want to have to go back in and fight these guys over religion, which, you know, I got my thoughts, you got yours. I'm, I'm not interested in that. And if I don't have to fight you on that, I shouldn't, which really maybe should be an argument for us with other governments where we continually try to push them on religious freedom and tell them about the, the inherent rights of the dignified person and all. And they're just really looking at it. Look, I'm just trying to keep things under control here. And not right. lose power myself. And that maybe you go then to the Genghis Khan argument of saying, well, you know, then the religious freedom is still the right answer, even if you're looking at the worldview that way. That's right. And, and, you know, when we're talking about religious liberty or any genuine human right, we're glad to have it affirmed, even if it comes from a, a different worldview than our own. It's uh, it, it, in, in the world context we need to understand why people think differently, but we also need to. Uh, this is we have a Christian conception of common grace, where where, where you find an affirmation of the truth uh, about the human dignity, then affirm it. Yeah, and what the Apostle Paul said. I mean, these things are self evident. They they are known by man. That uh, this is. I, mean, I would say he's arguing natural law. These are things that are obvious right. because of our human experience, that we can see this thing, these things. And when you find it in other contexts, when you find it in other religions, which often you do, because they each can discover natural law, each can discover these natural rights, 
And you can, you can see how these play really effectively for governance uh, when, when government does yes. things that, that uh, back up this sort of natural law, the human rights philosophy. Whenever you use the phrase religious liberty, you're likely to see a lot of nodding heads, or at least a lot of people who want to be seen as giving a nod of the head to religious freedom or religious liberty. And that would include many of the dangerous autocrats around the world, many of the governments that repress and deny religious liberty. They want at least to be seen as in favor of religious liberty. The Soviet Constitution guaranteed religious freedom, and so it goes even down to the present day. The hard issue is defining the terms. Religious freedom, religious liberty, religious tolerance, freedom of conscience. What do these terms mean? Defining the terms is essential to defend the rights. You mentioned the word toleration. We've talked about uh, religious liberty. I think it's important to formally distinguish the terms. You are not the United States ambassador at large for international religious toleration. No. But rather for international religious freedom. That's correct. Yeah, make that distinction. I think it's really important. Yeah, the, the, the freedom is, is that this is an inherent right, and it isn't something that you tolerate. And I personally really don't like the term of tolerance. We, we talk a lot in this space. People talk a lot in this space about religious tolerance. I'll tolerate your faith. You tolerate mine. It's way too low of a bar. Because, okay, today we tolerate each other's faith. What about tomorrow? What if I decide tomorrow I can't tolerate your right. faith anymore? Oh, well, then let's take action. Let's lock him up. We, we really need to get above that and to a level of religious respect or even care and love for each other. I mean, that's the standard right. that Christians are called for. Then that's a standard then that can carry you through the next day when, okay, things start going wrong the next day. But if I respect you— Okay, I'm just still, I'm going to stand up for you. If I love you, I'm going to fight for you. And we really ought to be fighting for each other's religious freedom. But the job itself is about religious freedom and pushing governments to stand for that right, uh, even though they may say, look, I would really rather favor this faith over that faith. It would be politically advantageous for me to do that. But we argue with these governments all the time, saying, no, that is going to lead you eventually to some problem if you try to favor one over the other. The, the role right. of government is to protect the right. And if you stay there, then you're going to have a more robust society. You're going to have a more robust economy. You're going to have less terrorism. You're going to have more satisfied people uh, and, and not get in this tolerance business that's one thing one day, different another you just stand there and protect the right, and it's for everybody at all times in all situations. And I think that people sometimes fail to understand that religious tolerance can have a very low bar. And uh, when Way I too low. teach about this, I point to Elizabeth I of, uh, of Great Britain, uh, who, by the way, is a heroine in so many ways as a, as a monarch. But, you know, she reached a religious compromise in, the, in her day by saying that she was not going to force windows into men's souls. She was not going to interrogate them about their faith. So there would be a toleration of Protestants. There would be a toleration of, of even those who would be called Puritans. There would be a toleration of Catholics, a toleration of Jewish people. Within That was probably about the limit of what was imaginable in, in Great Britain at the time. But I point out to people, and students these days, or when I take groups to England, they're astounded by this. But I say, look, not one of us could be in Parliament. Not one of us could go to Cambridge or Oxford. Uh, not one of us could be in many positions because there was an established church. So others were tolerated, but, uh, but you couldn't go to Oxford. You couldn't go to Cambridge. You, you, you were in a secondary status. And, and so you could say that Elizabeth was an example of religious toleration, but not of religious liberty. Yeah. And she wouldn't have been. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, as you pointed out, and one of the first things you were citing too about how these things tend to repeat themselves. Yeah, you're you see that today in modern China. You can see a situation uh, today where um, what happens is is the society. You may have a tolerance, but you get marginalized within the society. So you you can't. 
uh, go to certain schools or you can't uh, occupy certain places or because you're too faith oriented. Uh, you want to go to church a couple of times. Well, the the uh, communist government doesn't like that. They don't want an institution that they don't control, uh, that's outside of their control. They don't want too much of this concept of human rights developing within the people. Therefore, we're going to put this down. Uh, and But maybe we're not going to lock you up. We're just going to tear your church building down. You're going to have to go into a house church uh, type movement. But if we find you keep doing this, we're going to uh, see that your kids can't go to the school. Uh, I mean, th- those sorts of things then start permeating into a into a society, and they they happen then. They're happening now. You know, I noticed something else, Mr. Ambassador, recently, and uh, that is a redefinition of terms. And I really had not seen this until uh, actually the horrible attack in Sri Lanka, uh, where I was looking at some of the news coverage and also looking at some of the constitutions of uh, of several countries. And finding out that, for instance, there would be a constitutional statement of absolute freedom of religion. But then it would say, but nonetheless, the government recognizes a responsibility to protect the dignity of Buddhism because it's a part of the culture. And I thought, okay, now that's an interesting little sleight of hand. Uh, and because It's a part of national identity. And again, you can see where you can give with one hand and take back with the other. Yeah, and that's and places do that. Most constitutions around the world will guarantee religious freedom, as did the Soviet Constitution. As yeah, as does the Chinese Constitution. Uh, most countries have signed on to the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 that declares religious freedom and and those rights and their right even to convert. But then you'll have these other pieces that are brought in, and I th- I think what ends up happening in a lot of government officials' minds is they go, yeah, 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 we're for religious freedom, you know, we're, we we believe in that, but if it starts getting in the way of cultural identity, if it gets in the way of our politics, uh, we're we're not going to really protect it at a very high standard. We're going to we're going to say it's here, but it really doesn't apply to you because we've got these other things that we're going to see as a as a superior yes. uh, issue. That again is another track that's going to lead you into into troubles uh, either sooner or later, uh, and it will also strangle your economy in today's mm. world. You really have to be able to reach out beyond your own borders and be able to trade and interact. And you've got to be able to get brain power and people in from other places and willing to travel and come in to, to have a, a, an economy that can grow robustly. If you don't protect people's rights of conscience, they're not going to come. You're going you're gonna to artificially strangle your own economy uh, in, a, in a world where uh, intellect and thought is so much a part of what the economy does. I want to ask a question about the United States. Just asking about our foreign policy, how consistent have we been as a nation in defending religious liberty around the world? I think I would put it this way. I think we're we're better than everybody else and we're not good enough. Uh, I, there are times where we will uh, call out a country or not call out a country because they're a close ally. Um, I think we're getting better at it. For a long time, we didn't list Saudi Arabia as a country of particular concern on religious freedom, even though they were horrible. They are a terrible actor on uh, religious persecution. We do now. We just recently listed Pakistan as a country of particular concern, but they've been for some period of time really a, a real problem. But then we're operating in Afghanistan, and we need to work with them on the security issues and the problems we have in Afghanistan. So there's always this internal pressure inside a State Department that when you move forward on something like this, you also have the security issues and the trade issues and the other human rights issues and a whole series of competitor issues and just the basic relationship with that nation that a lot of people are going, well, we don't want to hurt our relationship with Pakistan. Uh, And it's at a a tenuous moment and the Chinese might move in more. So therefore, let's not do it. But that's always, I I just always think that just serves us poorly. And anytime we walk away from really declaring the truth and being clear about it uh, is when we start asking for trouble. So we're just we're better to call them like we see them, 
deal with the consequences afterwards uh, rather than slight something one way or the other. As an historian, I often find myself asking the question, why then? It has to be explained why something happened when it happened. It has to be explained why it didn't happen before. And so I ask that question because you were a principal sponsor of uh, the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998, and that basically produced the job you now hold as, as part of that act. So why did the United States of America pass that legislation, its government, in 1998? That's a commitment that was made in 1789. It, it took a long time to get there. What, what happened? What explains the timing here? Um, a number of us in the Congress at that time were hearing from people that were persecuted and, and locked up around the world. Uh, and there started to be more connectedness uh, to us. And I was advocating for people in Uzbekistan and jails there and various places far flung around the world. Uh, and we were pushing on State Department to be active on these two. And in some places they would, in other places, no, 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 we don't really deal with that. And then they would say, well, we don't want to get too engaged in this. And we were, we were saying to them, look, you have to get engaged in these issues and you need to understand the role of faith and religion around the world because you can't, you're not going to be able to understand an, an individual if you don't understand their faith, if you don't understand their religion. And they pushed back and said, no, and we want to do this on our own pace, and we think this is too close to an Establishment Clause issue that you're trying to establish religion. And we're going, we're not, not trying to establish religion. We just want you to understand it, and we should stand up for this right for everybody, not just for Americans. I went back and forth, but uh, at the time then, there was enough people that were hearing from other individuals, like I was, that were locked up for nothing more than practicing their faith peacefully, that it was able to pass, and, and Bill Clinton was willing to sign it uh, into law. And it really started a new chapter that was slow getting going, but, but has really picked up speed uh, now. But I, I think it was that interconnectedness around the world. The other thing I think was really starting to happen was you, you started to see these faiths— um, I don't want to say clash, but come up against each other, uh, where prior to the Soviet Union falling, the world was fairly static, not completely, but in many cases on a lot of the faith issues. And then now you started to see those those worlds start to engage, the faith worlds engage, and sometimes uh, violently. Uh, and that really, I think, moved people too to say, why now is now you're getting these sorts of contacts that you weren't getting previously. I also look back, and as I remember, I, it's been 20-plus years now, but as I remember, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California was one of the Senate co-sponsors of the bill. Don Nichols and Dianne Feinstein were the two sponsors, the two primary sponsors of it. It was Don Nichols' bill primarily, but uh, uh, Senator Feinstein was was right there with it. The reason I raise that is because that demonstrates the fact that it was a bipartisan consensus in 1998. And was in 2016 uh, when the Frank Wolf Religious Freedom Act passed, which was the follow-on bill to it, passed by a Republican House uh, and, um, uh, and a Congress divided and a Democrat president. Uh, so this remains, and, and that's one of the key pieces about this, is that, that this is a bipartisan issue, and we work aggressively to maintain it as, as such. When you look at that course of religious freedom around the world historically, you know, where are we headed right now? Because there's a sense in which Americans and people in the uh, intellectual elites of the West, we thought we knew where the world was headed after 1989. The world doesn't appear to be headed where we thought it was going. And uh, rather than seeing increased liberty around much of the world, we're seeing increased repression. Yeah. So h- how are we to read the world right now? Or, or is it just a country-by-country country analysis? Great question. And I don't—it's uh, not the end of history, I can tell you that much. Um, uh, some of the aspects is of these clashes of civilizations you see— pieces of. You know, Al, I, I think, honestly, it, it's we're at a point in history where we've got to figure out how various civilizations interact. Uh, I spend a lot of time in the Islamic world uh, working with Islamic leaders, both governmental and religious leaders, uh, and 
the the effort is to try to find ways to navigate through this greater interconnection that's taking place. And when you have uh, uh, substantial differences of, of worldview that happens. But I do find now much more interest on the part of Islamic governmental leaders and Islamic theologians to try to figure the way to make that connection work without the brutality uh, that that we've seen so much of thus far. Uh, you're seeing the, the more brutal situations in um, Buddhist parts of the world. Right. And when you're thinking inherently aggressive, violent Buddhism, does that sound accurate? Uh, to you, it does if you know Buddhist history, but uh, you know, and the and the history of of the East, but and and again, in to say that that's not the big story of Buddhism, but it it's been there because when you're talking about Buddhism or Hinduism, Americans and Westerners think you're talking about one thing, but uh, actually there are different schools of Buddhism, different even rival schools of Hinduism, and you see that being played out in India and in China right now. It's just I I think. I, it's my belief that world leaders are now starting to see more of a um, – we have to try to figure out how these interactions and these engagements work because the world's not getting bigger. It's getting smaller. It's getting more connected. If your country wants to to grow, it's going to remain a part of a connected world. And people now travel uh, yes. so much, and they're interconnected. And you may get phone calls today from – Far-flung places around the world on your cell phone, and it's no, it's no big deal. It's not anything unusual. And uh, so this is just going to be a feature. The world leaders I'm meeting with, uh, a lot of them, they see the world this way. And that if we're going to get a handle on some of this terrorism, like what happened in Sri Lanka and other places, you've got to have this sort of respect for fellow people of faith in different places around the world or you're just right. going to have more of this stuff and we don't want this stuff i the sri lankan government didn't want that easter bombing to take place they may have fumbled things uh in addressing it but they didn't want this to take place this right. hurts them and it killed a yeah. whole bunch of people right uh so as a convictional christian um I cannot participate in interfaith events. I, I don't and I can't. Uh, it, it was very difficult after 9-11 because there was so much pressure to show up at interfaith events where there would be a prayer offered by an imam and a prayer offered by a Buddhist priest and a prayer offered by a Christian. Uh, I, I couldn't do that because it, that, that, that was implying something that as a, as a, a biblically committed Christian, I, I could not imply. But I, I say, on the other hand, I have a lot of great conversations with Muslims and uh, and with other uh, world religious adherents, but I have to show up as who I am, and I only want to have a really interesting discussion with a Muslim who's really Muslim and, and with a Buddhist who's really Buddhist, and they should want to talk to a, an evangelical Christian who's really an evangelical Christian. And along these lines, I think this is what the secular world confuses and and just gets completely wrong. Because actually, the full measure of theology rightly should not bring contempt, but respect. Yes. And the example of this I give is I defended Secretary Pompeo recently uh, because of an address he had given in the Muslim world, and the secular press was all over him for identifying as a Christian. And uh, I, I just I just said, look, I've been in the same places, and you have to understand what Muslims really do not respect is a secularist. What the, 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 the worldview they really don't respect is, is secular liberalism. I said they would have much more respect, and I'm sure did, for a United States Secretary of State who shows up and says, I am an evangelical Christian. I know who you are. You know who I am. And uh, I, I've spoken in the Muslim world, and they actually are interested in me speaking where I've been invited as a Christian. And uh, so, again, the secular mind is the, is, the, is, is the mind that cannot understand. It wants, to, it wants to bring about world religious peace by minimizing everybody's beliefs into a, a secular mash. But actually, uh, if you're going to find mutual respect, it's going to be a real Muslim respecting a real Christian for each holding to very genuine convictions. I, I speak often in the Muslim world. And I, you know, declare who I am, and I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm a Christian. I have no difficulty with this, and I, I my experience is what you say. I 
receive a lot of respect that you're there and you're saying, this is what I believe. This is who I am. Now let's talk about religious freedom, which I am not expecting you to give your faith up, and I'm not even going to ask you to, to do anything like that. All I'm asking you to do is when I'm persecuted for my faith to stand up for me, and we'll stand up for you if you're persecuted, because you should have the right to be free, and that right. we should be able to agree upon that standard. And I, I, and plus, to me, I think it's honestly a great advantage for the Secretary of State to have a dynamic faith. Uh, I mean, I, I, I know him person. We're both from Kansas. He's he's a great man. He's very bright. Um, but it, it it also helps you understand other people of strong conviction and faith. And you, you kind of understand more what the negotiating limits are and what the negotiating possibilities are. Uh, because you, I understand you're not going to go against what your, what your conviction is in your soul. You're not going to do it. Okay, that's good to know. Uh, now let's figure out what we can work on. What, what are the parameters of the things we can deal with? And there's also a healthy respect. I respect you for this. Um, I, I love Mother Teresa's line on this that I just think really summarizes it the best. And she was here was a Catholic woman uh, in a, a dominantly Hindu country that was a very public person. And she, but she would say, you know, I, I love all faiths as the search for God. I'm in love with my own. Uh, and I just thought, yeah, yeah, it's, it's this level of love and respect for that other person and their search. I'm, I'm in love with my own faith. This is who I am, and this is what I believe, and I, and I love it. As an evangelical Christian, I would have to, uh, to, to reformulate that and say that I can't love any other faith uh, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I do see in, in that quest— a, uh, an evidence of what it means to be made in the image of God. And uh, here I'll quote Augustine, uh, who said, uh, my soul can have no rest until it finds its rest in thee. And so I, I have to be evangelistic at every turn. I, I, I can't celebrate a Hindu being a Hindu or a Buddhist being a Buddhist. I can't. If that's what religious liberty requires, then, then I fail. But I don't think that's what religious liberty requires of me. It requires of me to say a Buddhist should be as free to be a Buddhist as I am to be a Christian. A Muslim should be as free to be a Muslim as I am to be a Christian. And I'm going to honor every single one of them, whether we define it the same way or not, is made in the image of God. And uh, look, I have to be honest, I hope every one of them will come to hear the gospel and come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But... Uh, but even so, I've got to defend their rights as a, as a God-given right, including religious liberty. Um, and by the way, that's our only hope for preaching the gospel. Uh, that, 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 so evangelical Christians, we have to remind ourselves, that's the only argument we have for why we can go into a country that is defined culturally by some other religion and say, we have the right to preach the gospel. And I appreciate your consistency uh, in pointing to the fact that religious freedom must include the freedom to convert. I just cannot tell you how important I think that is for the State Department, for the United States, uh, and how much I appreciate it in your consistent defense of religious liberty. And it happens to me is the Declaration of um, the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Is that right? And what freedom do you have if you don't have the freedom to be able to to choose, to not choose, uh, to change, uh, to not change. This is this is part of it. And plus, to me too, it's just it's kind of a. I, I imagine God when He's creating us, thinking about what problems are going to happen when He gives us this kind of freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a massive freedom, and He knows people are going to mess up. This. He knows that this is going to happen, and yet he gives us this freedom anyway. So the, to him, there must have been something incredibly valuable with this level of freedom. And what government has the right to interfere with that level of, of love and freedom that the God, creator God of the universe would give us? I, uh, I, I think that's a, a highly suspicious on our part that we would think that we've got a right to interfere with something that would have had to have been had that level of contemplation and concern from the creator of the universe. The big questions of life and where the most urgent headlines meet, I can't imagine any diplomat anywhere in the world with a greater frontline responsibility than what has been invested in your office and what you personally have taken up. 
Ambassador Brownback, I want you to know how thankful I am that you serve in this role, and I want to thank you today for joining me for Thinking in Public. My pleasure. One of the reasons why I so enjoyed this conversation with Ambassador Samuel Brownback is that he goes to the hard work of defining the terms. He's deeply thoughtful, even as he is in this frontline position defending religious liberty and religious freedom around the world. I also appreciate the fact that in this conversation, he was willing to speak specifically. This is one of the problems of the entire issue of religious freedom around the world. Many people say they're for it. And, of course, as I said earlier, they want to be seen as saying they're for it. But when it comes down to specific, specific charges, specific rights, and specific aspects and dimensions of religious freedom, that's where you see regimes, governments, and cultures falling short. The issue of conversion is so important. And, as Senator Brownback mentioned, it's in the U.N. Declaration of Human Rights, going back to the late 1940s. But that, again, just points to the fact that words are only as good as the insurance behind the words, the moral integrity and credibility behind the words. That's why the State Department of the United States has an ambassador at large for international religious freedom. If it were all just about words, such a position wouldn't be necessary. But it's not just about words, even as it starts with the words being rightly defined. But here's where evangelical Christians sometimes get confused. To affirm religious liberty rightly is not to affirm religious diversity. It is not to affirm the fact that it is a good thing that so many people believe so many different things about God, believe in so many different gods, have so many different theological systems. It is not right for evangelical Christians to look at the religious diversity of the world and say, what a beautiful picture. We should be so thankful the human ingenuity has spawned so much religious creativity. Biblical Christianity, indeed biblical religion, going all the way back to Israel, is exclusivistic. It's not only monotheistic, it's specific about the God who is being worshipped, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We point without reservation to Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We cannot ever apologize nor waver in our commitment to conversionist gospel ministry. In faithfulness to Christ's command, we go into the nations, not merely seeking to add to the hues and the depth of the picture of glorious religious diversity. No, we go into the world to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's very crucial. So why do we defend religious liberty for all? Well, for two very important reasons. The first is the fact that we believe that every single human being is made in the image of God and thus possesses certain rights that are granted by the Creator. And one of them is the right to an uncoerced conscience, and that means, most importantly, an uncoerced soul. Now, that's a deeply theological affirmation, but after all, even the founders of the United States pointed to nature and nature's God, and they pointed to the fact that these rights were endowed by the Creator. That's a crucial distinction, and thus we understand that we affirm religious liberty because we cannot affirm the opposite. We cannot coerce persons to be Christians. That's a violation of the very gospel that we preach. Putting people on the rack and demanding that they confess Christ is not evangelism. Evangelism is the persuasive presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as we see modeled by the apostles in the New Testament. It is telling the good news about Jesus, calling for conversion, promising the gift of everlasting life and the forgiveness of sins. It is never wavering in monotheism. It is never wavering on monotheism. It's never wavering on the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is never hesitant in calling for conversion. It is never reluctant to say, here is salvation, and salvation is found in no other name. Salvation comes only to those who consciously confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's essential to the gospel, but that also means that we have to respect religious liberty because we are looking for conversion. We are not called to a ministry of coercion. Those are two very different things. Conversion is actually the opposite of coercion. A real conversion you cannot coerce. 
The second reason that we defend religious liberty is because we are faithful to the call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that means that we answer to a higher calling than any human sovereignty, and we will even break the law to preach the gospel if necessary. But we do want to call upon nations to respect our religious liberty, governments to respect our religious freedom, even as we in turn respect the religious freedom and liberties of others. I really enjoyed the opportunity to have the conversation that I had today with Ambassador Brownback. I'm an evangelical Protestant. He's a Roman Catholic. We had a discussion on those terms with the full measure of conviction. That's a model for what needs to happen outside this room and in continuing conversations. That's what needs to take place in a respectful conversation everywhere we are in the world, where we contend for religious liberty. Yes, because it is a God-given right that every government must respect. But of course, we are also as evangelicals driven by a far more urgent mission, and that is faithfulness to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thankfully, we come to understand those two commitments do not come into contradiction. They're actually consistent, and Christians are called to a consistent defense of both. Thanks again to my guest, Ambassador Samuel D. Brownback, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you're going to find over 100 of these conversations at albertmoeller.com. Just look under the tab, Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to SBTS. For information on our undergraduate college, Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.